This year is brought to you by Eshel Publications. Eshel Publications is a non-profit organization dedicated to spreading the Torah, Shiurim, and Tzfarim of Rabbi Aaron Lapiansky. For sponsorships or more information, visit eshelpublications.com. Is that a healthy way 
to approach, to approach questions or issues. And to Ramesh Bain, if I could ask as a follow-up to what Rav Lapiansky says, and again, anyone else can pipe in as well, should we be creating appropriate forums, I submit possibly only offline, for people to openly air their doubts and concerns? I'm not speaking about people who have attacks, but rather people with true doubts and concerns. And although I know that you're not necessarily in Chinuch, but is it an approach, I ask from a societal level, is it an, is it an approach that we should be encouraging even in, even in our most of and even at a young age? Uh, so with that, I'll turn the microphone over. Um, the first, I guess we've, we've mentioned so many points, and each one is, needs its own time and so on. I, I want to touch on one of the points, um, and then maybe we, as the discussion evolves, we'll, we'll, we'll be able to talk about many parts. The first thing is, I'm, I'm a naturally, something bothers me when people say it's terrible, it never was, and this is this, and so on. For those of you who read your Haskell literature, um, the, the Kutso Shalyud poem was one of the most destructive poems, and it was a highly cynical attack on, um, on Halacha, on Stern, for those who know, and so on. And going back a bit, uh, one of the most um, powerful, destructive works was not a deep philosophical work, but it was Voltaire's Candide, for those of you who have went to Bay High School and learned these things. And Candide is, is a vicious, cynical attack on a sort of sugar-sweet, Kolmadarachon, the power approach. The Chazal tell us about the Greeks, that they would have these theater productions where they would sort of make fun of the Jews, that scratch them, so the Ishkin, the Shemitah, the Shabbos, and so on and so forth. So cynicism as a destructive tool, I mean, our history is laced with that. Even in Kedusha, I mean, I remember I read of Shom Shadron many, many years, and he had the ability to turn people onto Yiddishkeit, but he was a very powerful cynic against everybody and everything else. And most of his memorable lines are, are the, you know, how he took apart other people, uh, right, not rightly, but he, you know, that was his, his, his uh, tool. So cynicism is a very, very powerful tool. It feeds off two things. It feeds off an emotional anger. If, if I ask somebody a question that's proud about, if I ask somebody, is this person a good doctor or not? This person has no interaction with him. His response will be, well, he's, he's had this experience, but your feeling might not be experienced, whatever it is. If he had bad experience, He'll say, well, it depends. If you're looking for a quick ticket to the next world, it's perfect. <laughs> and not that. Though that's coming from an emotional anger, it's, 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 it's an attack. Second, it requires also um, the ability to latch on to an untruth in your own words. I mean, we have two lawyers sitting here, at least on, on this volume, and you know that one of the biggest mistakes of defendants is when your story is basically true, you try to embellish it. Once you embellish with two or three things that are not quite true, you take the person to a ride of those two or three things, and everything else gets messed up. And we do ourselves a disservice when we hype and say things. And I want to give two examples. So I'll just take a bit more of my time. I don't know what they have, but I think it's very important. One on the level of Khinafe Baden, 
to Kirov, which I think is relevant. Someone told me the following story. He has a son who was in high school, got turned off, and so on. The, the, the event that turned him off was his Rebbe spoke passionately to reinforce the Tolu Zemuna about the Kafakadish Nusqueh that spoke and gave the Rebbe of Muslim. I don't know if you remember, I don't know if you were born when the Kaf was born, but it was about, I don't know, eight, nine years ago. And, and, uh, and he spoke. And the boy was a very honest, straightforward kid, he's a good kid. Now, he said, that's crazy, how can a cop talk? And the Rebbe was very angry, he says, of course, it's, it didn't build Hamor talk. So what's the problem? And the kid didn't know exactly how to answer it, but he, um, he, he was, he, he, he became a person that should be given as Rebbe, and that whole year was written off, and basically the next year of high school was also written off as well. Now, I'm not, we're not here to discuss the cop, to dissect the cop, it's, 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 it's gone through to, to the world of fish, um, and that's not the issue. The issue is, when you tell a story like that, and let's assume, let us even assume that it was true, but you know that that story is going to allow itself to be made a shmat at. Worse, if you take Bilbo's Hamar, and, and that the Torah says a nace, and then you make it part of normal life. You're not adding to the children's immunity. When you tell stories, one of my sons once read a story, he was a grown up, he, he, he wasn't in school, and he said, you know, I don't have a problem with a story that's not true, but I have a problem with stories that can't possibly be true. What's the point of it? So, so I already feels, it's true, not true, but I'm pumping up their moon, I'm pumping this Yes, so a kid who's eight, nine years old is wowed. If, if he ever outgrows the maturity of eight, nine-year-old, the whole building can't pop it down. So, so if he realizes that the cop didn't talk, so the Hamorabil Musa didn't talk. You, you chained, you, you chained this cop. So, Chacham is on the Berechem, where we overkill with good intentions. We're leaving ourselves wide open for ridicule. And today everything is posted. This is going to be posted soon, and I'm going to get all the comments. I'm going to get comments. comments on. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, won't, I, I won't have enough mashka to clean my mouth this <laughs> and myself into that. That's one. And a second one that I think is, we want to explain to somebody who's not thrown about the beauty and the wonders of being thrown. And it is. It's incredibly beautiful and wonderful. But it has its problems. There's some way to an interview. Um, said, I'm not a medical college, right? So it's okay. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> he had an interview and he said, I detest people that sell Yiddishkeit as a way to have to sleep well, have a tranquil life, to have a wonderful relationship, that can be hunky dory, that can be wonderful. It's a struggle and a battle, and that's why he's right. It's Emmis, and that's what makes sense. We need to say, yes, it comes with a package of hardships. Comes with a lot of hardships, but 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 where it's going to and what it is and what it's meaningful—that's the beauty. So yes, it, it's easy to sell somebody that we have utopia, but you pay a very big price for it, and it comes back to want. So those are the two points I want to make. Sure. Yeah, I think this <laughs> Give me a long leash. <laughs> So uh, I'm going to share with you two thoughts. One is an age-op-related incident, and one is just a general observation that emanates from elsewhere. Many, many years ago, it must have been seven, eight years ago, maybe nine, 
Um, Rabbi Longbrown asked me to speak at an AJOP conference, and I told him I'd love to, but I couldn't afford the seven hours traveling back and forth. He told me, well, we're having a, um, a women's educator program simultaneously, and I have a van that's driving three principals of Beis Yaakov's coming to the convention, and they've agreed to let you sit in the back seat and you can do whatever you can So the whole Shabbos, I was with my guests trying to figure out, okay, what kind of earphones should I wear and to make sure I could do what I wanted to do, but the, the principals got into the car and um, I started off with my, talk about cynicism, I started off with my typical cynistic uh, tendency and I said, so are you speaking about anything other than sneers? And the answer was, <laughs> the answer was no, that's all the <laughs> And that went on for about seven hours. <laughs> and one of the discussions that one of the principals told, shared with me is relevant to this discussion. She told me that the pr previous summer she had been in Eretz Yisrael and had met with the principal of the largest Beis Yaakov in Yerushalayim, which is located in Sanhedrin, and she was telling me that the principal told her that they have a policy in that Beis Yaakov that they will not hire a woman teacher who ever taught Balei Tshuva. Not that is a Balei Tshuva. Ever taught Balei Tshuva. And she challenged me, do you know why? And I thought and thought and thought, and finally I figured it out. The reason is because someone who teaches Balei Tshuva explains Torah to address the questions. And the girls in Yushalayim don't have any questions. And therefore, we don't want to present her in a way that might infer there is a question to be had. So the, the Beisiaco teacher in the van said to me, but don't worry, Mr. Bain, um, in our high school in New York, we do understand that there are people who have questions, and we do therefore teach with the questions in mind. So I said, uh, Mrs. So-and-so, you're implying by your defense that asking questions is a bad thing. And halavai, you, your girls would be like those in Shulayim don't, that don't ask questions. And she said to me, well, don't think that girls don't have questions, don't have passion in Yiddishkeit too. I'm sure in Yerushalayim they have passion without the questions. And I said, well, I, I hear you. And wouldn't there be people who would say that the questions aren't to get to passion, but maybe the passion is to get to questions. And maybe the questions are the goal of Yiddishkeit to be able to think through and challenge and not just take things at their word. And she had them stop the van and let me out at that point. <laughs> so I'm, I'm just sharing with you a, a perspective on the validity and health in Avedis Hashem of asking questions and different perspectives that might be brought to the fore. But the question that, that Yehuda posed to me was, is there a context in which questions should be, should be asked as sort of like a safe place to ask them that people would not feel threatened or challenged or be judged for asking questions? So I think in the first instance, this touches on a central problem that we have in, in the Orthodox community, which is bled in from the general community, and that is the obvious answer. The obvious answer to that question is, of course, there is a place. It's called your home and your parents. And although questions that are addressed in a public forum of significance that touch on emuna and the nuances of Yiddishkeit always carry with them a danger that different people will understand them differently and therefore addressing them collectively poses an enormous downside. And the way that's supposed to be addressed is that a parent is supposed to address these questions to their children directly. 
And children should be able to ask particular things that bother them, and their parent who knows the child well, and is able to assess what the child could understand and not understand, is able to tailor the answer appropriately. But in that context, in the, in the reality that we don't have, that culture, often because a parent is not equipped, but more often because a parent abandons their role as being a parent, which is a very strong phenomenon in our community, is, well, do we encourage the questions altogether? So I had been studying, um, a, a, I had a chabrusa learning something that was on the, on the brink of uh, Nister type stuff yeah, a couple of years ago. And I, I suddenly dawned on me that I had been learning for many, many years a general principle that was taught to me from the time I was in high school, that you don't learn Kabbalah until you're 40. <coughs> and my presumption was the reason that you don't learn Kabbalah until you're 40 is because there's so much else you should be learning first. Kabbalah should be you're more advanced after you've learned Shas, and you've learned Shohamorach, then you're ready to, to go on to a, another level. That was my presumption. And I realized recently that's not the case. I realized that there's a completely different reason to not learn Kabbalah until you're 40. Many years ago, I had created a program at the OU called the Pardes Project. The Pardes Project was a, a template that we used to try to encourage Jews with a relatively minor or, or um, limited educational background to see that Torah talks to them as well. And what we would do is we would create a series of questions and how would you respond in the following scenarios? And then we put together anywhere from 8 to 15 marmakomos, both in English and in Hebrew at the back of the booklet. And groups would get together and they would ask the questions to each other and discuss them and then they would turn to the marmakomos. And the consistent complaint we had over and over again is, where are the answers? You know, okay, we turn to page the end, there's no answers. And I think one of the characteristics of maturity is the ability to ask a question that doesn't have an answer. And when a child has a question, they need to have an answer. They cannot tolerate not having an answer. A person who is more developed and more, more mature could understand the reality of life that there are questions without answers. And since the avoda of studying Nister, Kabbalah, is a journey to understand a Kodesh Baruch Hu, and by definition, it's impossible to understand a Kodesh Baruch Hu, then why bother with the learning? Because the learning itself is the avoda. The journey, the search itself is the avoda, even though you're not going to understand the answer at the end. It's beyond you. A person under 40 is not capable of doing that, and therefore is likely to make up answers and impose answers that are probably incorrect, almost certainly incorrect. And therefore, we need to defer it. So you know, when we talk about is there a safe forum, I think one of the questions that has to be addressed is at what stage in life? Are we talking about a high school student? Are we talking about a 40-year-old or adult, and as we all know in our community today, there are as many questioners in later in life as there are in adolescence. I, I don't want to be seen as a carping. And I'm not to get into the criticizing the talking fish if he's not here to defend himself. <laughs> but I, I think I think the Rosh did not go far enough. Cynicism may be as old as mankind, but it, undoubtedly there has been a new flavor that's been introduced in the last couple of years, even if it's only the last handful of, of, of years. And that is that every cynical idea out there that used to be discussed just among a few cynics at the, uh, at the Schwitz now is available to everybody, almost thrust upon somebody. It means that a child who has any curiosity, if he's in a classroom 
or adults for that matter, where questions are suppressed, questions are frowned upon, he'll go elsewhere to find answers, and they're not going to be Google's. If the kid's a little bit more than that, and he gets answers from the Rebbe, that answer better be a really solid answer, because you can be sure by the time the kid gets home, there are five websites devoted to taking down that answer. And here's where we have, I think, a little bit of a problem, and really have to do a little bit of change. Before we come up with answers, we have to give ourselves the permission to ask the questions and come up with the answers. It's not so kosher in all places. In many places, asking the question is frowned upon. Offering several kinds of answers, alternative answers to choose from, is frowned upon. It means that the people who should be giving the answers often don't have them themselves because the questioning process has been shut down in their mind. Let me give you one, my Shahaya, around the same time as you were doing the Pardes project. It was a Yid in Harnof, brilliant guy who'd come from the FSU, um, where he'd become a Balchuva, and he had lots and lots and lots of questions. And whenever he had questions, they told him, listen, this is Moscow. We don't have London. We don't have people who are fully seasoned in Torah. So we can't give you the answers. When you get to Yerushalayim, there for sure, you will meet plenty of people who have all the answers. So he came to Yerushalayim and nobody had answers. So he approached some of us, I was included at the time, says, I want to develop a cadre of people who will come up with answers to the questions that are asked the most. He put money into it. I got as far as sitting down with Professor Schneerleinen and a few of his friends. We had a chabura ready to put out answers <coughs> to be used like the, uh, the, 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 the um, fire alarm in case of danger break glass full strength. It was not going to be in the public forum because it's not for everybody. Anyway, it turns out that this, that this fellow was a double agent. He wanted the best answers that the firm world could produce so that the rest of this cadre could take them down and publish that. So we deep-sixed the project, which is unfortunate, and they went ahead and produced, if you recall, a series of pamphlets that were put in mailboxes throughout the rating neighborhoods, full-page advertisements in newspapers, and they caused a great deal of havoc. Now, the real moral of the story was that there were other people who read these things, who read the pamphlets. I'm going to get in trouble for saying this. Most of them from YU, who said, this is the best that they can do? This is old hat? There's nothing new here at all. People who had been inoculated because they had been shown some of that thinking and saw, you know, you can say this way, you can say that way. It's no real good excuse for selling the experiment. We have ways of dealing with it. Can I prove to you that our ways are right? Nah. Can I prove anything is right? No. But there are other people in the community who wouldn't settle for anything less than proof. And some of you may know that there is a battle going on right now. And that everything that we have been sort of hinting at and proposing there is a good deal of pushback 
in parts of our community to say, this is not our mahalach. We teach the munapshuta, the munapshuta only, and we do not deal with questions. Because if you deal with questions, there's always the possibility that the answer's not gonna be so good and some kids will get turned off, so we don't deal with questions at all. We have people in the audience who have developed programs, um, trying to see if Rabbi Saperstein is here from Adi Manin, see him. Mrs. Gelfish is here, who's, who has a uh, sort of a related, not exactly the same thing, but a wonderful program for women. Um, we have to empower people to be able to come up with answers. And for that, we need people to rigorously yield to two rules, the rule of three and the rule of five. The rule of three is that in many, many, many cases, the three most important words to other than any question are, I don't know. I don't know. It is so comforting to other people to hear that the Rebbe, the Gado, doesn't have an answer to every question and doesn't take away from his enthusiasm at all. The rule of five is, I struggle with that too. That there is struggle. I'm never going to forgive you, Rebbe Lepiansky, because the, the quote from Soloveitchik was where I wanted to start, but that's one of my favorite as well. The only thing I can substitute is what Schneer Lyman says is his one-liner of all oh, my Marit Hazal, his favorite keta, is the place in Chobos Alvavos, where Rabbeinu Bachir Rabbeinu, Bekutah uh, says that one of the simanim of a person who's for real is that when he gets older and his mind is more mature, he revisits every single thing that he learned from his youth and re-examines it with the benefit of maturity of a mind that can handle more. We don't often allow that to our own. If we did, we'd see that we can be comfortable not having the answer as long as we know that what we have is at least as good and most of the time more compelling than anything on the other side. We have to be, for the right people, less afraid to dip into people even who are not totally in our machina. We don't see eye to eye. I would challenge, don't yell out your answers here. If you had somebody, not that this is the only issue out there, who was really, really bothered by issues of biblical criticism, archaeology, um, the, the, the evolution of language in Tanakh, if you know where to start to come up with an answer for somebody. And I do. There's a Ram at, at the Gush who's written a, written a book. It's something I would want to change a little bit come up with a nusuf that's closer to us. I actually have to it from the Mahabar. But there are resources, there are people who've done this, but we often don't allow ourselves the capability of saying, I don't know, and I'm willing to open my mind, I'm a, I'm a mature adult. When we do that, we should be working to produce material on different topics, a fact on 20 different issues that would not be out there in the public domain, but at least would be available for people who needed it.
patterns uh, those what used to be in the Schwitz and subsequently make its way to the web is a perfect lead into our next question, which to me was uh, the most interesting aspect of the title is the talking about bloggers. And bloggers, I guess, could be good or could be bad. Um, so I decided to Google the definition of bloggers. And I would say, having nothing to do with Rabbi Anderson or any blog he may or may not write, uh, I generally found it to be negative. And I was reading, and the one that struck me the most said as follows, bloggers are hack writers who, although experts at nothing, feel compelled to share their opinions about everything. <laughs> Many bloggers are very self-indulgent with their topics, often claiming expertise far beyond their education to appear intellectual, stimulating, clever, unique, or nonconformist. However, most blogs are simply online forums for poorly reasoned opinions. Bloggers who feel they are contributing something to the world are actually quite useless. For this reason, they've created their own world called the blogosphere, which defies the laws of logic, common sense, and humility. Now, the person writing this, I think, is also a blogger. <laughs> or someone there put it more succinctly and said to their kids, kids, you can be anything you want to be when you grow up, as long as you don't want to become a blogger. So the question I have, and I'll start, I know Rabbi Adderstein surely has things he wants to say on this, but I'm going to start with Rabbi Howard. It's so much easier to be negative and get attention than it is to be positive. And the question is that as we talk about trying to shift from looking at the negative aspects and how can we utilize these same tools, I used the word before, to co-opt them uh, for pursuit of Torah values, for the dissemination of Torah values. And it's not enough to simply put Torah content, content out on the web. We have plenty of that. It can be more, but that's not enough. And the question is, is there a way to change the dynamic to put out really compelling content? Perhaps do we have the right tone we can ask ourselves? Should we be more open, more accommodating? Should we be more edgy and taking on challenging questions? How can we utilize these same tools to be positive? And along with that, I'll just throw out one other query, which we were speaking about a bit, which is that when we speak of all this online negativity, it's important to understand it a little bit. And the question is, is it a cause or is it a symptom? And as was referenced before, the question is, is the availability of the forum, the internet, which allows for anonymous posting, it allows for dubious sources masquerading as authority, the ability was referenced before to quickly and easily uh, psak shop, to look for a psak that you like, or question of psak that you've received. So is the availability of that forum create a problem in our society? Or is there a problem with our community's foundations of Amuna and connections to the Ramon and this usage of the internet and the online forum is simply an outlet in which the consequences of this lack are on display. Thank you very much. I happen to know that a number of bloggers are actually whitefish. <laughs> I, I think that um, on a Sunday during the playoffs, it's appropriate to speak about the best defense being a good offense. And um, it, I, I think we, perhaps it's time for us to move from the defensive posture where the agenda and the conversation is completely set in the blogosphere by negativity to really, really sitting together and thinking here, a group like this, about how we can shift things how we would indeed be able to somehow set a different agenda, a better feel, a different feel uh, to how the conversations, the existential questions about 
world and about Yiddishkeit and about where we're going, but how 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 those things are addressed. The the, the um, you know on the one hand the we 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 speak about symptoms or causes, and of course it's both. You know the questions are there because we're not we have a lot of people who have a lot of questions and there's some dissatisfaction and concern, and it's not being addressed. And at the same time, it creates this sort of echo chamber and this environment, this community of discontent, of unhappiness, with which feeds and which generates. It generates more of the same. Uh, there was a study actually that was published in the Cloud Perspectives Journal that we had on technology, where someone found transparency sake with Cloud Perspectives. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we're all related to people who are involved. Um, but um, the, the, uh, the, where, they, where they found that a greater indicator, a greater indicator for, for poor health was not any of the classic symptoms, but actually being involved, living in a community of negativity, where there's a lot of complaining and a lot of dissatisfaction. The stress which that puts on people and on their system is substantive, very significant. <laughs> very significant, and to allow what is developing to a certain degree, this subculture, this community behind our communities of dissatisfaction is something which, which it would be very valuable to take, to take head on. And I, 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 I don't know if I can address you know, any fraction of the, of the questions which you, which you presented, but I want to just put out a couple of things, practical things. We do, yes, as all of the other panelists have said, we do encourage serious questioning. And it's important to be able to say, I don't know. It's also important and valuable to create a framework, a model of active searching, of active searching, serious active searching, not necessarily with, you know, with open-ended comments which you know, introduce a cynicism and a negativity and all kinds of other Difficulties, but creating that format. I, I, if I can, just share an example of something which we've, which 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 we do, which I, 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 we've done in Arkehila for 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 twenty something years at this point in time, and it was created and done and continues to be done for this particular purpose. Every Friday night in our shul after davening, I ask a question on the parsha. It's not like a trivia question where there's, a, there's an answer if you just look at enough books and you find out what was really the name of Noach's wife. But a thought question. A thought question which could really you know, get you thinking about the whole matter, about the whole issue. And I ask the question and I sit down. And invariably, there's you know, always like somebody says, oh, okay, you know, it comes up answers. I'm looking forward to come tomorrow, Be'ez Hashem, for the drosha because you're going to be answering the question at the drosha. And I, you know, I smile because that's not what it is. We don't, I don't do that. A few years ago, I started at the urging of someone who actually happens to be here in this room, who deserves recognition, the editor of Call Perspectives, Rabbi David Goldman, to discuss it at Shalshus. But the point really was, and again, this Friday night I had somebody there and I asked a question, another question on Marcus Torah, and he said, okay, so what's, what are we after that? He said, so what's your approach to the question? I said, I don't have one. I don't have one, it's a Friday night. Gotta work on it. You have to have something to work on over Shabbos, to think about over Shabbos. 
and to actually present not just when somebody asks us a question, one level is to be able to say, I don't know. I, I've been struggling with this question myself. And the other way is, maybe even again on an offensive rather than a defensive mode, to put out questions with which we struggle. Now someone will invar invariably tell you that there was a fellow who became an Antichrist because Friday night he would open up the Abarbanel and he would read all the Shilas, which he had, the 15 Shilas, and he fell asleep before he got to the answers. So he just had all he had was Shilas, and from that he became an Antichrist. First of all, I would like to meet that person. <laughs> And, 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 you know, second of all, yes, the, the greatest people who we admire are all works in progress. They're studying, they're working. Let people see that. Everybody's always so concerned and critical about the, the biographies which describe the person who knew Shasi Rishami when they were two and a half years old and, and don't describe anything of the struggle with which went into their lives. So you don't want to get personal about all of your personal deep existential struggles, the things you struggle with, but in the avoda of learning Torah and the avoda of understanding what's Hashem and struggling with these things, bring it up, show it, share the journey. And when you share the journey, and you know, inevitably, there's one the great advantage which we have is we may not know where we're going to end up, but we know as we study, at least, you know, I think our, all of our experiences. We end up being really satisfied. Maybe not completely answering every question, but the Torah is such that as you study and you uncover layers, you get lightning insights that are that are fantastic. And to include people in that process is a is a very valuable thing. The second thing, which I would which I would, I would just say again, in terms of the, the, the good the best defense is a good offense, which I don't think I which one it is, but it's one one way or the other is the following, and I, I say this again at the risk of the, of the camera. But we're now in a, uh, in a situation in the Jewish world where the agenda of discussion is set either by a few dissatisfied people with, with blogs. I wasn't pointing to Rabbi Agustin, but I was looking to you as the expert on, on, on addressing that. And, uh, or by, Ten graduates of a new rabbinical seminary that write very, very well and put things out there and put everybody else in the entire Jewish world on the defense, on the entire Orthodox Jewish world, on the defensive and trying to reply to that. It's as if we have nothing to sell except to defend ourselves about the things which the Torah says that doesn't flow, that don't flow with whatever the current mores and values are. The Torah and what we stand for, we have a lot to sell, we have a lot to promote. And instead of just figuring about how we're supposed to respond to the blogs and to the cynics, let's be frontal and positive. Like where do you have such a thing to talk, to speak about a community where huge numbers of people are giving 10% of their income to charity. Where people are studying about Shemiras Halosh, and I understand it's not nearly exci as exciting about other things, but isn't there a way? Isn't there a way to bring it out? Isn't there a way? You know, Michelle Obama breaks down in tears and speaks about how women are viewed as objects 
And you know, we don't have we don't have something to say about that with our halachas, with our hamhakas, about how we can do that. Why aren't we setting an agenda of public discourse on things like that with the Torah, which is ki chachmaschem uvinaschem leeme ha'amim asher yishmon eskal achukim ha'ela va'amu rakam chacham benaber ha'ayavolase. Why do we have to be answering? Why aren't we presenting? I just would like, to, since you gave permission, like permission, so. And coming off what Ramayusha said, I'd like to add one point. And everybody knows Ramayusha Piro was just Nifta. I was fortunate to learn by him for many years. And he was one of the great figures in the Chuva movement. And I know Ramayusha well. He was an extraordinarily intelligent person, so a broad person. He didn't engage so much in answering questions. He was familiar with, with political philosophy and things like that. But what wound people was, his own Torah was so deep. And one of his big talking his name was Benny Levy, his friend of Rafa, he died in 2003. It was Paul Sardis, uh, a uh, in Bufak. He was accused of taking him, starting off the derech because he started writing nice about Jews and saying he writes some valid histories and people don't, didn't forgive him for that. Serious, that's, uh, yeah, and, um, and he became a better and he became a little bit sorry, he died something else, so he was out three, much was very moved. But he said, where philosophy ended, Ramayusha started. But, but that's a genuine depth. If we prepare a fair Chomish and say that teaches us we should be very good people and very kind to each other, yes, it's a wonderful message, I don't, don't, Expected to wow somebody. So you need to find the, the same one who saw Salanti said that the Chaim's Derech is going to save the Oman Because when people heard intellectually engaging lectures in Europe, in university, then they heard of Chaim's, um, there was, there was understand. So when you take the question, the mind, a, a healthy mind wants to inquire, but it can inquire in many directions. And, and, and if you point in direction, that's fair and deep and, and satisfying. So the first thing is to develop in our own world uh, a deeper Torah. Moshe was, was a Chambadorah. He, he was the first person that you have to think when you're in schmooze. Most people schmooze on the stuff that you do to be able to nap off once in a while. If, if conventions don't do it, you, you go to Worcester schmooze. <laughs> but but, but, but Moshe was like, wow, you, I had to think in my foot when he spoke. You, you, your mind was, 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 was engaged. That's one point. And, and the best defense offense in Torah, if we are able, so if I don't have to, I don't know. But, but if what you hear in Torah has so much depth to it, so much, that's, that is the counter. That's one point. A second point, I want to tell a story from Alpha Salvatka that I read recently, I came upon it. And it's an astounding story from the same people. And an important lesson in this, in this area. It was written by somebody that I think is, is related to my Chutman, but his name was Yaakov Meskin. It was a Palmyalta. Things were rough. We think we had rough. They had much rougher in terms of Yiddish and people of the Derech. I mean, of those days, everybody went off the Derech. It was the best Bafa Salvatka, it's big Masmid, Tzadeh, whatever you want, that works, became the leader of the revolt. The revolt meant everything. You, 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 you took the sector of Berlin, literally. This person one day created a rocket space marriage and he stood at the altar yelling and screaming profanities and called the boss. 
Delta did not get the race short in the film. Delta was a good movie. When the whole thing was over, I think they ran away, maybe Delta, whatever it was, he turned to this person during the upper investment and he said, Well, don't you see that because of this has smothered everything, his intellectual honesty? And he said, I don't, I don't, I don't really know what you're talking about. He said, he yelled and screamed and jumped and stopped. Why? Because if he had to think rationally about it, he wouldn't believe what he said. The only way he could say what he could say is because he's yelling and screaming and stomping his own soul. If you ask a question and the answer is, yeah, the critters, you're shooting, it doesn't make any sense, you don't really it. I know one thing that you don't know the answer. That's the one thing that's clear by me. So we tend to work ourselves up in a sweat and think that when we react emotionally, and usually, those questions are either innocent or they're there to provoke us. That's exactly the result the person wants. For whatever reasons, I have many psychological reasons. There are much cooler ways. One of the ways you can, I, you can, you know, I don't know, again, this is not the session to go in, but LaMarshall, you ask somebody, do you believe in that? What do you believe? I see it. Happened everywhere. Happened something that takes a great distance. Scientists know. Let me tell you, they have an idea and they develop more ideas, they don't have a clue. Yes, time and space bends, but time is nothing, and space is nothing, so how can nothing bend? I remember that at a lecture, the, in, in, by us from back from scientists, and someone asked him, well, if time and space are not material, how can something not material bend? And the guy smiled and said, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> so, but, but, but the answer is, we, we, we have phenomena that we see, we understand some of it, and we have great questions. And, and, and if you're able to answer somebody cool and, and say, you know, and diffuse a question, diffuse the emotions, and, and, and so on, you are far ahead of the game that when you get caught up, because sometimes he wants it, and sometimes your, your answer becomes that validation. A couple of uh, disjoint recommendations. One, um, the blindosphere is pretty bad. There are some, some oases within it, and one of, one of them is, is uh, a site that I think you should become more familiar with. <laughs> no, not mine. It's called, called Beyond VT, which has been out there for many, many years and is a great resource for Bali Shubhuva uh, within all the struggles that they, they go through. Again, in things of chinuch and parenting and dealing with the community and the intellectual issues as well. So that's one place to look at. One thing that I can't emphasize enough is that not everybody who's asking the question requires an answer that is going to wow the collective faculties at Harvard and Yale. There are people who require that, and that makes it much harder on us to come up with perfect answers. There's so many more people out there who just need some chizuk, who want desperately to cling to what they have because they value it, but they're, they're bothered by the questions out there. It's a much greater group of people, numerically, and one that is easier to satisfy. For that group, I think it's important to recognize that you don't need a TKO in the first round which is what many of us think and why we don't write, we don't produce material, because we realize this is not a knockout punch. For most people out there who can be helped, and that's certainly the kavanah of some of us, and cross currents, Harry Merrillis, and, and the like, 
We're not writing to convince the, skeptic, the real skeptics and cynics. We're writing to give reason to those people who have the questions and are, and are struggling with issues and trying to give them another sign. Because they're people who, even if it came down to a suffix hashakal, which it rarely is, would say, I'm loyal to Torah. Torah is MS. I know that in every core of my being. As long as you're giving me something and I'm not a total idiot for believing this, that's fine. And that's much more b'chveshiyasa. Um, and third, if you're looking for a public venue, got to throw this in, there has been, just in the last couple of weeks, a, an attempt to get Rabbanim around the country to come up with a, a new organization. Uh, it's called Torah, catchy title, T-O-R-A, Traditional Orthodox Rabbis of America. It is meant to be a hedge and a foil to the leftists who are malumid in using social media and using, and using journalism, just to stake out a claim and say, this is what Torah stands for. And we realized from day one, although we have to respond to things in the news, uh, the real avoda will be to come up with some kind of, of, of answer. As a group, we can do it. Because we're not going to find an individual who's so great who's going to write, going to write the book and everybody will be happy with it. But to find briefer answers, what is Misara? What, what The left tells us, and I think they're very right, the one thing that really bothers me with all the questions on the left is that they keep on saying, you guys are very good at knowing what's puzzle. You know why open orthodoxy is beyond the pale of orthodoxy. You know why we've crossed the line. But you can't define the line. You can't, you, you, you throw out this Misara thing but I've yet to find the person who will, who will give the definition of what Misora really is. Who are the following Misora? Who's not? We can come up with answers like that. I'm going to urge all of you, um, all the men and any women with smicha, who we will turn down, <laughs> to go to Torah Rabbis, T-O-R-A Rabbis.org, read the pitch and see if you can help us. We could, in the space of this afternoon, surpass the number of people in the ultra-left organization. Another question, but before we do it, just a reminder, if anyone has questions, hopefully we'll have a few minutes. Uh, they can uh, motion to you, see if you will uh, bring the paper there. So uh, I wanted to speak for a moment about uh, a challenge that perhaps many people in this room are encountering, and that is the differences that have to do with the millennial generation. And if the blogosphere didn't think much of other bloggers, they seem to think even less of the millennial generation. I got a much shorter definition this time. They said the millennial generation are lazy, narcissistic, and entitled selfie lovers. <laughs> that was the definition. I actually think that the millennial generation is kind of like the US Congress, which their <laughs> popularity ratings are in single digits, I think 9%. But yet they keep electing their own congressmen. So we know individual Millennials, they're all wonderful people. They might be our children, they might be our peers, but as a group, they got a pretty bad rap. And so, in a more serious note, beyond the selfies, the fact is that the millennial generation learns in ways that are different, that are new, and at some level are inconsistent with our time-honored methods of chinuch. So the question is, what aspects of the millennial generation's approach to life ought to be accommodated and addressed versus ones that we have to push back against. And along those lines, and I think we're asking for essentially uh, segueing to this thought, is amongst the millennial generation, 
is a liberal bent uh, where you have uh, people who are aligning themselves with social movements that are often inconsistent with Torah and in fact a reference before to people out there under the title of Orthodox rabbis who are seeking to convince people that the aims and the aspirations of the liberal social movements have a source and a rooting in Torah Judaism. So how should a cure professional work to counteract this, work to deal with differing uh, approach to education and also questioning and uh, challenging statements that are put out that are not consistent with our Judaism. I'll start again since he started with, uh, with Rabbi Adlerstein with any of the other panelists as well. I'd add a few more to that, that list of things that are characteristic of uh, millennials. These are a little less fighting. It's a generation that is not textual at all. Um, there's a very, very short attention span. Uh, teachers in English departments around the country are assigning lessons, in some cases won't assign entire books. Um, what used to be the method of communication, YouTube, is now considered to be, for many people, too long. So you get these vines that are, what is it, six seconds? Or, I never watched them, but that's a, a, a further shortening of it. The fact that you can have a president of the United States who communicates with people in a, in a hundred and uh, forty character tweets says something about the way we communicate. Uh, I, know, I know people, from people, our people, who after five dates with a girl at the time when they're beyond using the, the intermediary because they decided we don't need the shotgun anymore, we're capable adults, they will break up by the guy just sending a 25 character, it's been nice knowing you but you're not for me. People are losing the capacity to communicate. It is a generation where all rules are questioned. The, idea behind it is, must there be any rules? We've questioned some rules in the past for good reason. Now we can even question rules like gender, which seem to be some of the most hardwired things. Uh, despite Rabbi Lapiansky understanding it, I fully expect by the end of the year there will be mass protests in the street of people who will protest against gravity. But, there's one but. It is rare, if not impossible, to find a society, no matter how corrupt, where the basic goodness of the human spirit does not come out in some way. It just, maybe it goes back to, to the Arizals, there always has to be a, a mizug of some tov. There's one word, which is the byword of the, of the millennials, and that is something that provides us with possibly a Pesach. That word is justice. The, um, for many millennials, the LGBT thing is not just because there are people around who should be given the right to marry and all that. It's because they have a friend who's gay. And it just seems to be so unfair that nobody has a way of welcoming them into the community, especially the Orthodox community. The sense of justice something that is not foreign to us. It is something that unfortunately 
for historical reasons, we kind of lost sight of and gave it to the reform movement to come up with their bizarre perversion of it, which has nothing to do with those words. But the Shavosh of it was not right. And beyond the particular characteristics of the millennials, I don't have time to do this, but from what I do in my day job as an interfaith director for the Simon Wiesenthal Center and interacting with other communities who are suffering from this to a much greater extent than we are and don't have the brain trust that we do and don't have the hunger that we do, it is clear that somehow we have to tap into the, the push, the leanings of the younger generation to justice. We have to be able to show that a Torah lifestyle allows you to do social justice better than if you're just a guy on the street with a big heart and a good conscience. And it's not that hard to do. I, I've been challenged on this repeatedly by evangelicals. So show us, Rabbi. They know they're losing their young. Allows show you, us. Allows you or drives you? Drives you, allows, propels you, turns you into a, into a much... The reason why it doesn't work for the others is because you know they do their social action thing and they're there on Thanksgiving, dishing out some, some soup to people at a homeless shelter. And then after a while, the people say, hey, how am I, as an Episcopalian, any different from the Buddhist who's doing the same thing? Or the Hindu or the atheist? We do have an answer to that, but we don't think about it well enough. We have taken the Musr Hanaviyim and left it, would Mashiach bring it? And have not emphasized enough the fact that, you know what? Bernie Sanders is, ugh, but not everything about Bernie Sanders is wrong. Part of his vision of, of, of a kinder, gentler America, of a way of, of, of sharing income, not the way he wants to do it, but this came from us. This came from us, and it'll never happen. It's a pipe dream unless you allow the Rebona Shalom into it. So I don't have the answer. I don't have the methodology. I don't, I, I don't have it. But and within this group, maybe we can start coming up with some ways of utilizing that. Before we open it to questions, if I could just ask if any of the members of the panel have anything they wanted to say, particularly on this note of being proactive and on the positive front, where else we can open it. I don't know whether this is an agree a disagreement with Rabbi Adlerstein or a understanding I have of Rabbi Adlerstein uh, comments. I think that the millennial generation is representative, perhaps more vocally, of the broad society in which we're having a very hard time presenting a Torah narrative that resonates. And I think that the reason that's the case is because we have so many predicates to our hashkafas hachayim that are so fundamentally distinct from American values. And we're starting five steps down the road in arguing how things should be dealt with without going to the basic fundamentals that underlie where we're coming from. And when we start arguing with them, and I don't know whether you were saying this or not, about if I'm talking to them on social justice with all the predicates that they're assuming in place, I'm going to ultimately not resonate. We have fundamental difference of how we view the world. I mean, the, the American culture, the American value system is, in my view, probably the most seductive of any foreign philosophy and value system that we've ever been confronted with. Human rights, 
human centrality. It may be just a repeat of the Avonim in the time of Hanukkah, but it's certainly an emphasis that is very, very alluring. And that's where the millennials are coming from. That's where our college students are coming from. And when we try to fight with them on the superficial level at which they're at, assuming all of the premises that they're assuming, we just don't make sense. We don't make sense. And that's what I find us doing over and over again. And when we try to defend our values, try to defend our positions on all of the most controversial issues, it just doesn't sound logical because we're working with the wrong premise. Now, I don't know how you get the opportunity to work back to the fundamentals, Aleph, Bayes, Gimel, that would then lead you to Dalit and Hay, that makes sense. But to fight the battle on Dalit and Hay without doing Aleph, Bayes, and Gimel, it's a losing battle. Okay, again, if anyone has any questions, they can write them down and send them, but we do have one question from the audience, which will do verbally, or that would come at a question. to something that was put down as a fundamental negative with Shabbos. Chazal say, call it Zenusa Asula. Chutz with Zenusa Davoidazar. To the contrary, scoff, being scoffing is a very wonderful tool. I don't know how many of you know this true story and it was in the press. Someone in my shul has, uh, I think it was the Cincinnati Inquirer, sometime in the 30s, the day after the trial. The place of Silvazatzal wanted to build a mikveh opposite of the reform shul. And of course, they objected to it. And they hired a very prominent lawyer. Rabbi Silva Zatzal hired Robert A. Tiff. This was his first case as a lawyer. And when they put Rabbi Silva on the chair, the lawyer said, Rabbi Silva, you believe in the Bible? He says, yes. You believe that Billum's donkey spoke? He says, believe? He says, I see it. <laughs> Chemistry? 
So he's on the defensive. So I don't know means. I really don't know why I believe this. But I'll ask you a question. So the scientist says, science doesn't know yet. He could say we don't know yet. But we can't say that we're discovering new things through the Torah as questions are being asked. And what's very interesting is that people who are reading, I just got, uh, I won't call it a book, it's a safer, from scientists, I think Samuel Cohen, I haven't been able to read it yet. I just got it. About all the various understandings of Torah that we get from science. I have just completed something, I expanded uh, a monograph, and it's not to believe how many questions we have against scientists. You scientists, you scoffed at one time, Askevam used to scoff. They scoff. But it's about 65, 70 years where we know now I'll be science, how that works. Where did the rabbis know it from? Where did they know about all the chromosomes, the X's and the Y's? I personally maintain that growth of it was because it was Siyadat Ishmael. And there were many things, I, I have people send it to me because they know I was working on this. There were many questions. Do you know, in 1970-75, the great scientist who discovered the factor why blood coagulates couldn't get over what he called the Jewish Bible because he realized that the child is in danger if they cut the child before the seventh night because the material which creates the, cl the clotting factor, a person gets 110% of the norm on the seventh, on the night of, of the eighth day. Do you realize that? And if you do it before, there's a great danger. When you have to go through certain circuits where you have a bias, what's the din? But he says you can't, you do realize the Jewish Bible they knew? He studied it for so many years. Do you realize how many kashas we have on them? But we were always on the defensive. And even those who want us to take a proactive stance, it's still in the defensive way. We can be on the offensive. We have a lot of cautious. And I think that we have to get, if to turn around the smear psychology and not to be, not to offend, but to become offensive. Thank you. <laughs> somebody else's um, hypotheses to a self 
um, immolating absurdity, that's the best term in the world. I just want to share something. You know, occasionally, uh, I deal with people who are scientists and dirt officials. I was watching a um, I was watching a lecture on a, on a video someone gave me. It was a, a highly regarded biological professor, a woman, and she was giving a picture of the entire world. You know, all aspects. It was some sort of ongoing sweeping sense of science. And she contended that the world came about suddenly. It came about with no cause, and you know, just poof. Um, as opposed to the ones that said it's infinite, it was a start from nothing. So you'll ask the kasha, how could something come from nothing? How could it be nothing than something? And I, 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 um, for those who see videos, I'd be happy to share it with you. She said the following. Cause and effect is a biological conditioning introduced by evolution. Since you were walking with your friend, you saw lying, and then you had one friend less, you realize that lions are not good. If you saw rabbit, you grabbed it and had a good supper, that's good. So we've been conditioned that cause and effect. But cause and effect are not the end is true, they're useful. So, so that the world has no cause is perfectly good science, but we with our perverted minds are not tapes. I, I was dumbfounded. I, I, I mean, it, it was like a come full circle where somebody's been attacking me. You don't know where the question comes from. What caused the question? That's a non scientific answer. I can't say, well, this is my mind, obviously, because I don't have that defense. But, but, but I mean, I, I, for me, that was like a moment, like a double solution in the sense of self. Emulating a statement. I, I, I couldn't believe, I, I, I must have opened that. I said, I can't believe that somebody made that statement and is speaking in the name of reason. I, I apologize, I've been told that our, our time has uh, expired here. So I, I know there were some questions sent up, and I thank those who did. I'm sorry that we don't have the time. I want to thank our, our panelists very much for their remarks, for the call for respect this panel, and thank you all very much. For the